I'm Jamila Rizvi, and this is Anonymous Was a Woman, a Future Women and Penguin Books podcast. Each week, my co-host Astrid Edwards and I will celebrate the stories of women, the stories that engage women, and the women who write those stories. Our guest today is Benjamin Law. This week, our theme is solidarity. For me, this is a really special thing to unpack because reading is the ultimate act of empathy. It allows us to experience the world from a point of view that isn't our own. And for those of us who have led lives of privilege in one way or another, it gives us the opportunity to see the world I hate that walk in another man's shoes line because that just suggests we're going to go walk in another white man's shoes. But for me, solidarity is about reading experiences that aren't mine, experiences that aren't how I've understood the world to help me understand the world more fully. And with that very garbled introduction, I would like to welcome my co-host Astrid Edwards. Hello, Jam. It's great to be here. Do you know what? I thought about redoing that introduction and then I thought, no, I'm not going to. And the reason is this. I think this is a topic we all struggle with. We're all scared of saying the wrong thing. Not in a political correctness gone mad sense, but I think we're all treading on new ground when it comes to this idea of inclusion and of privilege and of unpacking our feelings around that. And I think there's sort of some messy imprecision that goes on for me. Is it the same for you? I have always lived my life in books, okay? I have been that reader and occasionally that aspiring writer and I have understood the world and the world around me through reading and writing. And I always would have thought, you know, looking back on my 20s, I would have said, I'm really well read. And now coming to the end of, you know, my 30s, I'd only read the Western canon. I had only read dead white guys with the occasional Australian woman uh, poet thrown in to tick a box somewhere on the school curriculum. And I'm really ashamed. And it's only been in the last 10 years, despite how much I've always read, that I really started to actively go beyond what was at the front of the bookstore or what was given to me on the curriculum or what just naturally flowed from my previous reading choices. And it's taken me that long to really understand what the problem with my reading is and try to fix it. And one of the reasons that in the past, I think so many of us haven't got that breadth of knowledge is A, we haven't gone looking for those stories, but B, those stories haven't been published in the traditional way because publishing houses have generally told the stories of the privileged, of the people who have access to publication. Oh, completely. I mean, the act of writing a book is an incredibly privileged uh, act in and of itself. It means that you had the time and the space to sit somewhere and put words on the page. And that takes an incredible amount of skill, but it also requires resources. I mean, you need somewhere and you need to be fed and clothed and housed through the whole writing and publication process, which can take years, right? And when somebody who didn't come from the establishment managed to put together a manuscript, often publishing houses wouldn't take them. So... Flowing on from that, what it means is that when we have had in literature or even in nonfiction a dissection of lives that aren't the privileged few, they have generally been works that were written by people who didn't have those experiences themselves. In other words, our stories of Indigenous Australians for so long were white people telling the stories of Indigenous Australians. When women characters were written, so often they were written by men, both you and I live with various disabilities and chronic illness. And we know that when we are written as characters in books, certainly in times gone past, we are 
figures of, oh God, either disrepute or sadness or pity or the grotesque. And that wouldn't happen if it was people with disabilities doing the writing. I cannot tell you how many times I joke about MS, so I have multiple sclerosis, being the disease that you handily give your character if you want to get a bit of pathos and have something terrible happen to them to move the story along when you have nothing else. For example, The West Wing with President Bartlett or, for example, Neighbours with Susan Kennedy. It is a crutch that writers lean on and it's horrendous. You're a plot device. You're reduced to being a plot device. And I think the the other thing is that when you are a minority being written by a majority, particularly when you're being written badly, you're often written without complexity. You are put there for the purpose of whatever makes you disadvantaged, for whatever your intersection with the world is, and you don't get to be a whole person. You're not a 3D character in that sense. And I'm really excited that shortly we are going to unpack this very question with the glorious Benjamin Law, who is a screenwriter primarily, but is also a great lover of books. I am absolutely thrilled to be joined in my isolation cave by Australian writer, broadcaster and national treasure, Benjamin Law. Benjamin, welcome. Thank you so much, Jamila. So today we wanted to delve into this idea of solidarity and solidarity through reading, but also through writing. And this idea of who gets to tell the stories and who gets published is one that has got a whole lot of airtime lately. What are your early thoughts on that? Well, you know, I come from it from different perspectives because obviously as a gay dude, as an Asian Australian dude, I am so aware of histories that even aren't my own of being kind of colonised and appropriated and having strange forms of ventriloquism applied to it, right? And so many demographics, I mean, the obvious, most obvious example in the Australian context are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers who've had their stories told on their behalf. You know, great acts of journalism and narrative imagining have been done on behalf of Aboriginal stories and storytellers, but they have been missing from the conversation for quite some time. That's probably most obvious in terms of what I've been looking at in terms of the screen industry. So several years ago, I wrote a piece about Aboriginal screen storytelling and how we went from a country and an industry where in the early 1990s there were zero known Aboriginal faces in drama and comedy to where we are now in 2020 and, you know, it's not worth getting complacent about but we've reached a stage where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representation in drama and comedy is actually proportionate to the population. But the funny thing is I bring up that story because I remember when I was going to write it I was like, I'm not sure I should write it. Like I really wrestled with whether I should be able to write about the Aboriginal screen industries. And I talked to my mates who were both in screen and Aboriginal background. So people like, you know, Nakia Louie, who's a close mate of mine. I'm like, I don't think I'm the right person to write this story. And we wrestled with it because she knew where I was coming from. And then I was like, oh, we, we both decided, I think it was maybe Nakia's idea where she was like, Maybe if you write it from your perspective, but also look at how this story of the Aboriginal screen industry has broader ramifications for minorities such as yourself. So I don't think it's a simple conversation. I think it's something that's worth wrestling with. I think the the worst thing that we can do in these conversations is to say, look, it's a pretty simple conversation. Here's the rule and just follow it. We need to explore where that rule came from 
why we need to have rules in the first place. God, I could go on, can't I? Or I already am. It always sounds good when you go on, Ben. You just told us a story where you were wrestling with whether you had the right to go there, to publish, to bring a story to light. When you think about readers who, you know, walk into a bookstore or are surfing online and choose to buy or read or borrow something, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, not all readers are going to necessarily understand that the subject they're in, they're interested in or the story they're interested in has been written by someone who maybe has the right to tell that story. And I'm interested in your thoughts on how do readers even figure that out? Mm. Where do we even start with that one, right? And I think it, it's worth pointing out in the first instance that not all authors and not all authors from different cultural backgrounds are on the same footing, right? So, for instance, I think we're at an we're in an era now where I think Asian Australian storytelling on the bookshelves is far more advanced than it was, say, 10, 15, especially 20 years ago. There's a much more big range and a multiplicity of voices. I think that's only going to grow more and more and more. But I think at the same time, with ter- in terms of, say, African-Australian diasporas, that's still in its infancy. There are so many great African-Australian storytellers on the page, for instance. But, you know, with growing up African in Australia, that anthology that was edited by Maxine Beneva-Clark and with the help of two other assistant editors as well. But with Maxine's work in showcasing those stories, I'm like, oh my gosh, like so many of these storytellers I have not heard of and where are they? Say if someone was writing a short story anthology, right, and it had a whole multiplicity of perspectives that included Asian Australian. I think if it was done really well, I don't think I would actually have too much of a problem with it. Whereas if there was, say, a non-African Australian storyteller who had written a novel purely from the perspective of African Australian storyteller, I would have huge problems with that. And that's because we can't divorce ourselves from history and context. So it gets back to the original point of what I was trying to impress, which is we're not all on the same playing field at any given moment. And you've got to have these, you've got to lean into the complexity of the conversation rather than shy away from it. Because of course, if you're a, let's say white Australian man who is writing fiction as an African woman, well, the African woman who actually has lived experience of that story has far less of a chance of ever getting her work published, let alone for any money, than you do. And it's kind of hard to write that without that knowledge. The bit I think where it gets really murky, right, I feel like I'm on really solid footing with that sentence. But then I go to the next thought, which is, am I then suggesting that I don't want more multicultural and prominent multicultural characters in the work of people who aren't from culturally diverse backgrounds? Don't I want the disabled woman of colour appearing in everyone's books, not just the books of disabled women of colour? And and I think that's where I start to fall over myself. Obviously, there can't be hard and fast rules here. All of this is a little bit messy. But if we wanted to try to create some guidance for those who were writing a character who had a intersection or disadvantage that was not something they personally had, what is their responsibility there? What do they need to do? 
You raise such a good point, Jamila, because none of this can be disentangled or divorced from this really vital conversation of making sure that we're representing Australia in all of its multiculturalism and plurality. And that's that doesn't just that's not just a conversation about race and cultural background. It's a conversation about ability. It's a conversation about gender. It's a conversation about sexuality and all of that stuff. And so, where do we begin? Well, I think it's different rules depending on different types of writing, for instance. Like, for instance, a TV ensemble show will always have different characters and television is inherently a collaborative medium. So if you are the showrunner for a show and you want African-Australian perspectives, you want Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives, Middle Eastern, Asian-Australian, thank you. You know, first of all, that is so terrific. The way that you work in television is you create a writer's room. And so are you inviting people into the writer's room with those perspectives and with that knowledge? And beyond that, are you also giving them paid work? You know, are you actually going to take that extra step in making sure that the group that you bring on board to make this story actually have knowledge and skills? And if they have fewer skills, are you in a position to skill them up? And then I guess if you're a novelist, then it becomes a bit more precarious because you've got the single authorial voice, right? And are you telling a story from someone's perspective, from a minority group that isn't your own? What are you trying to do with that? How are you trying to tell it? I think it's quite instructive to see someone like the writer Anna Crean, who's a really good friend of mine, her debut novel, which sounds weird because she's been writing so many books, but it's her first fiction work, Act of Grace, does have a character in there who has Aboriginal ancestry. She is an Aboriginal character. She's one of many, many, many characters that Anna's inhabiting in that book. It's not just the sole Aboriginal perspective and she's not trying to lay claim on some sort of authoritative Aboriginal perspective in all of that. She just happens to be an Aboriginal character and that inclusion needs to be there because Anna's trying to tell a story about Australia generally. Would I feel less comfortable if Anna was just writing from that character's perspective? Absolutely. I read Act of Grace by Anna Crean last year, as you mentioned, and oh my goodness, that was one of the, that was the most stunning debut I have seen, Ben. Mm. And I am still a little bit shocked that Act of Grace didn't make it onto a lot of the the long and short lists, actually. Uh, In that book, she also takes the point of view of an Iraqi uh, immigrant from uh, Iraq to Australia who did experience the Iraq war and Australian soldiers in Iraq and on return to Australia. I haven't seen her work discussed that much in public. And I actually have been wondering if it's because people didn't know how to make the point that you just made like what right Mm. did Anna have to write that story but then she couldn't leave it out because if you are telling multiple stories of Australia at this present moment in time it has so many different ages and experiences and races and backgrounds I I think and maybe I'm wrong but I I think I did read um a conversation with Anna in in the print media that did touch on this stuff from memory it might have been Zoya Patel the writer it did touch on that and Anna was really keen to embrace that conversation but I think other people like you say Astrid might be a little bit wary why that book Act of Grace by Anna Crean stands out Anna's background is as a features journalist as an investigative journalist so she invests not just literary fictional craft which you, which you have to do for a novel but years and years of research, right? Like if you are a fiction writer, your responsibility is to empathise, to inhabit and to almost, if you want to say, possess a character's perspective 
and to make sure an audience has access to it. I don't think anyone can test that. You know, I've written for television. I've had to write from the perspective of, you know, Anglo, Anglo women, for instance. But there isn't that kind of historical precedent where Asian Australian men have historically, um, you know, colonised the voice of Anglo middle-class 30-something women, at least not that I'm aware of. And if there has been, I really apologise for that. Ben, your argument seems to come down to two really key things there, context and work. So when we write or seek to write a character whose experience or background is not our own, we have to recognise where the privilege lies and where people who have that lived experience may or may not have access to the storytelling microphone that we do. And the second one is do the work. If you're going to write a character whose experience is not your own, then figure out what that experience is. If you don't know, do the research, pay someone who does know, bring them into your tent of privilege where you do have a microphone and the ability to earn a living, draw on the knowledge of others rather than thinking you've got it yourself because you get yourself into trouble when you try to write a character who is unlike you and the people you know and you do it really badly. Really, I think the uneasiness the kind of slightly freaked out moment that you have when you ask yourself, should I be writing this story is an incredibly healthy one. And rather than being defensive about it or trying to shrug it off, I think you should be leaning into the complications. I mean, that's your, that's your other responsibility as a storyteller, which is, are you actually honoring how complex the story is that you're trying to tell? And like you say, Jamil, absolutely does come down to the work. I think, as much as this is a conversation about cultural appropriation, historical context, racial oppression, it's actually also a conversation about are you lazy or are you doing the work? Is your black character there because you decided to make your white character or who would have otherwise been a white character black or are you writing a fully formed human being on the page? Completely. And I think what you're saying is so, it reminds me of all of the TV shows that I've either tried to help or, or have heard of stories of my friends working on them where a character was scripted as black or Middle Eastern or Asian Australian, a minority group. And then when it came to the casting, they're like, oh, well, we haven't done enough work in figuring out the specifics of their cultural background or family anyway. So why don't we just hire a white person because the actors are already there. So already it's not just a problem of casting, and of the so-called talent pool, which is a whole other conversation. But really, because the work wasn't invested from the writers, you've got this situation where you can just default to Anglo, which is something that we so often do in Australia. Ben, thank you for being here with us today and having the conversation. I think this entire episode is coming down to leaning into these complex and difficult conversations as the next step towards us being maybe just a tiny little bit better when it comes to solidarity. I could not be more excited about our next book that we are about to unpack. It is the joint winner of this year's Booker Prize, along with Margaret Atwood's The Testaments, which means it is in pretty good company. And that is Bernadine Evaristo's work of fiction, Girl, Woman, Other. It is about, I was about to say it's about a woman called Ama, but the truth is 
part of the complexity that comes into this book is there are so many characters. I think the closest to a primary character we have is Amma, who is a black lesbian playwright in her 50s or 60s, I think. And the fact that we start right there with the kind of almost protagonist (laughs) who is quite unusual in mainstream fiction. Women tend to become less relevant as we age. Black women are rarely in charge of their own narratives and narratives about women do tend to be about romance with men and this one isn't or certainly that's not its primary focus. I just love everything about this book. What did you think about the focus on so many different characters? Oh, I absolutely loved it and I loved the way that the author... Evaristo is really taking on those assumptions that we have. I mean, you just said, Jam, black women often don't get to tell their own story or hold a narrative in a lot of mainstream fiction. Ama, our kind of semi-protagonist, actually points this out saying, I had to found my own theatre company because other people would only let me be the slave or the concubine or the hired help because she was a black woman. Like, you know, the idea that that was all she was ever allowed to do until she founded her own company in the story is uh, reflective of life, but also of, of the wonderful uh, character that she is. Benedine Evaristo was asked in a Vanity Fair interview, which I highly recommend jumping on Google and having a look at. She was asked why she chose 12 characters to focus on and why she thought she needed to bring them all together in one book. But she was so brutally upfront. I was really impressed. Her response was, I wanted to create as many black British female protagonists as I could get away with. And for me, that is what this book is all about. It's about the complexity of women of colour, because when you are someone who is not represented in the mainstream very often, you get reduced to stereotypes. The only way to push back against stereotypes is with numbers. You can't say, oh, you know, which character, the black woman, when there were 12 or almost 12. (laughs) Almost 12. I think she has 11 black women and one non-binary character. Correct. And I I really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed uh, the kind of complexity she allowed for her characters in that way. The other thing I liked is that no one in this book is perfect. There is no sense of elevating these black women to a kind of... Um, that kind of wise storytelling, despite all that's been put upon me, I, you know, move above everything kind of stereotype, which I do think we see, uh, particularly of a lot of black American women characters in literature, and it frustrates me. These characters have empathy and grace and wisdom, but at the same time, they can be kind of pretentious and annoying and they also get things wrong. And Benedine Evaristo allows them their own complexity within the narrative. I've talked about being black and about being a woman, but this book is about more intersections than that, isn't it, Astrid? I mean, it's about age, it's about class, it's about politics. It's just about different points of view and we all have so many different points of view. This book absolutely flowed with energy for me. That sounds like a really uh, sort of trite thing to say, but it moved with pace and it wasn't a gentle read. Like I didn't sort of sit and lounge back in my chair reading this. I sat up like I was reading a thriller of some kind because the book has energy that just pours off the page. And I am not a skilled enough novelist to understand what tools our author is using to be able to do that. But I did have this sense of just being carried along by the plot and carried along by these women. I could see them in my mind's eye. I could imagine these complex 
complex characters, these women of substance, but also these flawed, tortured, busy, silly, sometimes bitchy women. I just, I think I loved how human they were, how much dimension and how much uh, fleshing out was done of these characters, which is a really impressive feat when you're talking about 12 different individual leading roles in one book, right? Oh, completely. I could not um, agree more with your description of like the energy in this narrative. Now, you know, I often find myself having streams of consciousness, you know, where I think random thoughts and I have little rants uh, in my head uh, against, you know, the world or, or people. Your armour. <laughs> and, and I found at several points in this, in this novel that I was reading, not my own rant, but the kind of thing that I naturally think of and have never seen written down before or has have never kind of had reflected back at me in literature. And there is this fantastic rant against uh, the European Union and the United Kingdom and Brexit and Donald Trump and the fact that it's all the baby boomers fault and we all just have to get rid of them. And I mean, you know, kind of shocking, but true, but a reflection on the state of the world in, you know, it was published in 2019. And oh my goodness, like that skill of knowing what I was thinking and somehow putting it into better words than I will ever be able to do is just a gorgeous damn read. Also, I think it takes bravery for a black woman writer to lean into that trope of the angry black woman rather than turning your back on it, actually go, no, I'm going to hold on to that and I'm going to run with it because we get to be angry. There is a lot to be angry about. The other thing that really brought home for me just how inclusive and shared and spirited this book is was the dedication, which it feels funny to close off with the dedication, but I really want to read it aloud for you. Evaristo's dedication is for the sisters and the sisters, the sisters and the sistren, and the women and the woman and the women and the women, and our brethren and our brethren and our brothers and our brothers and our men and our mandem and our LGBTQI plus members of the human family. So today, Jam, I would like to introduce Dark Emu, Aboriginal Australia and the Birth of Agriculture by Bruce Pascoe. This book was first published in 2014 and it has been reprinted every year since. Now, I have to admit, I didn't read Dark Emu until 2019 and it changed my life when I read this work. When it was originally published, it won the Book of the Year Award and the Indigenous Writers Prize in the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Despite that acclaim, the book has actually attracted mainly from the right wing in Australia, quite a bit of criticism. And this is because this is not the Indigenous history uh, that we were all taught in schools. This is a very different understanding of pre-colonisation Australia. Now, Dark Emu actually looks at the primary records. So I'm talking, you know, the diaries of the members of the First Fleet. I'm talking about the diaries of the early white explorers in Australia. And from those primary records... Pascoe makes the argument that Aboriginal Australia was not a hunter-gatherer society. Rather, it was an advanced agricultural society with domesticated plants and irrigation and aquaculture. And the reason this is important is because, firstly, our school books are wrong. But secondly, this idea of of terra nullius, of no one being there, of, of no civilization existing before European settlers got to Australia is completely wrong. But keeping that in our school curriculum actually feeds racism. This idea that nothing existed beforehand and everything was better after Europeans got here is incorrect and just so fundamentally flawed. I have to admit also to finding Dark Emu completely mind-blowing and while I 
found it mind-blowing, I was also criticising myself, I think as I did, for not knowing so much of the content. I think for me what stuck with me the most out of what Bruce Pascoe does here is he he almost proves the I don't want to use this word, it's such a white word, but he proves the glory of Indigenous culture as it existed before the arrival of white people in Australia. And he talks about these really sophisticated, advanced, complex economies, societies and a way of working with the land and caring for the land that was not in any way not advanced, sorry for my double negatives there, Uh, but actually that there was an understanding and a connection to the land that went beyond the spiritual, that spoke to understanding climate, understanding agricultural practice and understanding regeneration and rejuvenation of the earth and giving back to the earth in a way that you could keep that ecosystem and the complexity of that ecosystem going. And I was blown away by the knowledge, the the advanced knowledge that was had by people in the 1700s and well, well, well before. Uh, There's a reason this land has existed for so long because it had such wonderful and knowledgeable custodians. And yet, you know, I grew up at school and when we did geography and history and climate, the basics of climate change we did that when I was at high school, none of this was there. We just made a boomerang in another class once. And that I have a lot of shame about that. Do you feel similarly? Do you um did you walk away from that book feeling a sense of how did I not know this before? In primary school in the 80s, I did dot paintings and read a book on the dream time and then my entire secondary school, which included me studying history, didn't mention indigenous Australia at all. When I read Dark Emu, I was filled with shame for myself for not knowing and not having gone and taught myself given how much I read and I do seek out books uh, until that point. I was also filled with a lot of anger because we are now well into the 21st century and it hasn't percolated through Australian society at all levels yet. So I have shame and embarrassment and anger for a variety of reasons. I also want to say that it's actually a beautifully written book. I mean, despite we're talking about the content and the content is just of fundamental importance to all Australians, but this is a beautiful read. I mean, you just sit there and I have to admit, I'm not great with the land. I don't really understand agriculture or aquaculture. And, you know, I'm I'm sitting there reading about, um, you know, advanced fish trapping techniques thinking, well, I want to go and visit and and I want to see this and that's amazing. And and maybe if the world ends, I could learn to do this too. Like, I I don't know, like it's a beautiful and hopeful read as well as prompting negative feelings in me, uh, you know, as someone of settler stock in Australia, just, shame over the last 250 years, actually. Can I ask you a question, Astrid, which is going to take us away from the text itself and into the extensive cultural debate happening around it. There was, I know, a real kerfuffle kicked up and led by right-wing commentators, including Andrew Bolt, around Dark Emu. I feel like I must have come to the issue a little bit too late because I got a little bit bit lost in what on earth was going on. Can you talk me through why it was the conservative right in Australia had a problem with this book and the conversation that followed? As I understand it, Dark Emu has been read as a challenge to white history and I guess the idea that European settlement was a fantastic idea from every point of view possible. So a book that actually uh, takes the records of the first fleet and some of the first uh, white explorers in uh, Australia and uses words like town and agriculture to articulate 
this advanced civilization or multiple advanced civilizations that were across Australia is so deeply insulting that it has to be fought against. Now, there have been quite a few different attacks on Dark Emu over the last five or so years. The most recent actually occurred at the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020 when Andrew Bolt actually called into question Bruce Pascoe's indigeneity. Now, I struggle to think of something more insulting that you can do on the national stage, but I would recommend that anyone listening to us who is interested at kind of looking at how this played out would actually read Rick Morton's exploration um, of Dark Emu in the Saturday paper that was published in early 2020. And he actually goes back, he spent two days in the National Library of Australia in Canberra going back to the original sources that um, uh, Bruce Pascoe used and basically fact-checking the book in order to write about it in in the newspapers uh, in 2020 and respond to uh, the attacks of the right. It feels completely absurd to me, to be honest. It feels like something out of a weird Hollow Men-type episode on the ABC, this idea that you finally have a book written in this country that explores the complexity and the advanced nature of Indigenous society and care for the land as it existed before invasion. And then the author is attacked for not being Aboriginal enough when the people who have written these stories for generations now have all been white people writing about Aboriginal people. Like it just... It's so, it's so de- deeply insulting. And of course, one of the reasons why uh, Bolt and others are attacking Bruce Pascoe is because Bruce Pascoe uh, looks white, uh, if I can say that really bluntly. And that is to be completely expected when you think about the stolen generations and the missions and uh, children torn away from their families and deliberately not being able to return home or being made to assimilate and only live in white society. I mean, this is actually the end result of the horrendous policies that the Australian government put in place over more than 200 years. So you can't, like, I don't have the words, Jan. It's just disgusting. Um, But the book itself is stunning. I think it also speaks to how very much at the beginning of this conversation about race, about invasion and about the consequences of invasion that Australia is. We are right at the beginning. We are finding our feet. We are finding our words. And when we are still reducing our ethnic origins to skin colour, God, we're taking real baby steps, aren't we? (laughs) We're a long way from that kind of mature, advanced conversation that we should be having by 2020. In addition to Dark Emu, which is a book that uh, can, can be read by any advanced reader, you know, late high school and all adults, Bruce Pascoe has also produced Young Dark Emu, and this would be suitable for upper primary school and and young, uh, maybe seven year eights, uh, looking at the same source material, but just presented slightly differently. So this is a real opportunity for our school curriculum and Young Dark Emu is being taught in school. So I like to think that the contribution this research will make over the next generation could be quite profound. You're absolutely right. I just talked about those baby steps. I know for a fact that Bruce Pascoe has pushed us at least a few strides ahead in the conversation we absolutely need to be having. Oh, Astrid, the discussion of recommendations around the theme of solidarity is a really complex one, right? Because who you are defines who you need to be showing that solidarity for. So when we're talking about exploring the other, so to speak, the other looks different 
for all of us. But I'm going to start by asking you some questions and for some recommendations that you would like to give others from your own experience and also from books that helped open your eyes. I'd like to recommend Our House is on Fire, Scenes of a Family and a Planet in Crisis by the Tunberg family. So that is Greta Tunberg and her father, Svante, her mother, Milena, and her sister, Beata. Now, I picked this book up thinking this was going to be a book about the climate crisis. However, it's actually a really intimate look behind the scenes of the five years before Greta kind of hit the international stage about a family in crisis. Both Greta and her sister Beata have quite significant mental health disorders, making the family unit quite compromised. Uh, Even uh, in a Scandinavian country, the family that's quite well off and well known can't access adequate teaching, can't access adequate uh, hospital and medical support, can't access caring support for the parents. And This is not something I had ever associated particularly with Greta or with any apparently highly functioning wealthy family from a Scandinavian country. I was blown away by what Greta and her sister have experienced and I would recommend this for anybody, particularly because while we are sometimes talking about mental health more, we don't talk about mental health in children really at all. And I feel like we should. I think there would be no objections in that regard. And I'm really interested to read something around Greta Thunberg and the fact that she's become this international figure. But looking behind that curtain to what life is like at home for her, her parents, her sibling. Yeah, ready to do it. So that's a nonfiction I've been reading lately. Jam, what about you? One of the books that made the biggest impression on me for 2020 so far is Know My Name by Chanel Miller. Some of you may not know Chanel Miller's name, but she was a survivor of sexual assault whose name was anonymized when she went to court in the United States over an assault that happened while she was at university. And then after the outcome of that court case in which it was found that she was indeed assaulted and that her allegations had been entirely valid, which is sadly a very rare thing for victims of sexual assault to be able to prove their case in court. After that was done, she went public and she said who she was and hence the title, Know My Name. And she has written the most magnificent and beautiful book, which has become a New York Times bestseller in which she talks about advocacy, trauma, and what it's like to overcome stereotypes and shame around sexual assault and surviving sexual assault. One of the things she pointed out that really stuck with me is that when we talk about the stereotypes around sexual assault survivors, it's not just about words, it's about pictures, that every time in the media we see sexual assault survivors depicted, there is this anonymization and these sort of curious images, you know, silhouettes of the crying girl or duct tape over the mouth or, you know, a woman curled up in the corner. Chanel said one of the reasons she wanted to write this book was to push back against that and say, yes, that is how survivors look like sometimes, absolutely. But a survivor is also the chick who just handed you your takeaway coffee. A survivor of sexual assault is also teaching your kid in first grade and they're having dinner with you and laughing right now. And she talked about the ordinariness of trauma and how good we've become at keeping it hidden as women. And she just blew me away. And her book is the ultimate act of solidarity to read. If you want to understand what a sexual assault survivor goes through, if you are a survivor and you want to feel seen and share the experience of someone like you, Chanel Miller is absolutely the woman to do it. 
No, my name is going straight to the top of my to-be-read list, Jamila. Now, that is too non-fiction. How about we move to fiction? Have you got any recommendations for me in the fictional space? Maybe something a little bit cross-cultural. I do. I do actually have two. So I've just finished reading The Coconut Children by Vivian Pham. This just came out in 2020 and I love this. This is a beautifully, beautifully wrought depiction of uh, growing up in Cabramatta in Sydney in the late 90s. Of course, I grew up in Sydney in the late 90s. However, this was a very different insight into Sydney at that time. Uh, I did not live in Cabramatta and this is looking at the Vietnamese immigrant community uh, and the intergenerational trauma that the youths of Cabramatta experience and how this plays out in the schools and in the family units and in the streets of Cabramatta. Vivian herself is incredibly young and for a debut book, oh my goodness, like this gives you goals. This is a fantastic read. My second book, I only read last year, but is a book that I am going to come back to several times in my life. This is called Terranellius, a Novel by Claire G. Coleman. This book was shortlisted for several awards in 2017. And the beauty of this book, thinking back to our discussion about Bruce Pascoe and uh, Indigenous Australia and our history, is that Claire takes everybody through what it feels like to be the colonised. Now, that is not an experience I had ever had reading fiction or non-fiction until I picked up Terranellius, a novel. I'm going to be giving this to every young kid in my life as soon as they kind of, you know, hit 14 or 15 and I think they can handle it. And I would recommend every adult in Australia read it because it's stunning, but also it actually gave me an experience, a viewpoint in fiction that I'd never had before. That is going straight to the top of my reading list now. So I'm glad that both of us with our giant piles of books have just doubled them through the course of this episode. But for me, that shows how far even two quite regular readers, prolific in your case, have to go when it comes to exploring fiction and non-fiction that gives us a new perspective on the world and a new perspective on society and what life is like for those in this world who are not us. There is always more to read. Anonymous Was a Woman is a podcast made in partnership between Future Women and Penguin Books. We're produced by Bad Producer Productions. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find Anonymous Was a Woman. And while you're there, you may as well subscribe and that way you will never miss an episode. Bye.